Hey up guys and welcome back to part two of the Battle of Flodden Field, where we actually finally talk about the battle. Now, for any people who decided that they were just going to skip the first episode with all of the context in it, the bits you need to know. A bloke called Billy kicked the English out, then a bloke called Edward brought the English back in because he was able to beat John, who he put in power in the first place, knowing he was quite a weak ruler. Before Edward had managed to kick John out, though, John had gone and had a word with the French, who had agreed to a very, very one-sided treaty. Now, after Edward had died and Edward had died, a third Edward wanted to invade, but again, a man called Robert de Bruce had made sure that the treaty was continuing in perpetuity. We talk quite a bit about how this really, really benefited the French and not the Scottish. And then we fast forwarded a couple of centuries to 1513, which is when we will pick the story back up. Hopefully, that's made everything crystal clear. Hey up, I'm Joe Heathcote and this is Consistently Eccentric, a podcast where I will attempt to teach a friend of mine a lesson from British history, focusing specifically on the lesser known and less believable people and events that the history books tend to leave out. So let's get started with... And with that in mind, let's fast forward to 1513. <laughs> France were at war with England over who should control Italy, because of course Cal we were. fucking surprise. <laughs> That's exactly the reason we should be fighting. No, we weren't. <laughs> the excuse was who should control Italy. The reason was the French are there and we're here and I'm going to fucking have them. <laughs> well, either way. France. It's like, why do you climb Everest? Because it's there. Why do you fight the French? Because they're there. That's what they're there for. God created the world, and he laid down England and France. He said, you two are going to fucking hate each other. Despite the fact that you essentially have the same upper class. Yeah. You, You're you all are, related. Yeah. It's, it's like the worst family feud of all time. But Well, I'd say, I'd say World War One probably trumps it, but there we go. Well, in 1513, we were at war with France again. Who knows why? Italians may have been involved. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There was a war. Uh, And King James IV of Scotland, he decided that in order to honour the old alliance, he would have to break the newly signed Treaty of Perpetual Peace uh, with King Henry VIII, the optimistically (laughs) named Treaty of Perpetual Peace, which I believe lasted about 12 years. That sounds exactly like something Henry VIII would desire, like he was the Donald Trump of Tudor England. Well, to be fair, you know, he'd he'd not, at this point, decided to invade Scotland or anything. He was fighting France, and he was quite clear that he was going to honour the treaty. Yeah, but he he was like, okay, he was, I was being unfair to him. Like, he became the Donald Trump of England. In, in his early to middle years, he was famous, like, he was like, the, he was the European example of chivalry, wasn't he? Oh, like, yeah. Like, many, many, there are many records of courts all over Europe being, like, charmed and amazed by how wonderful Henry VIII was. But King Henry... Yeah. He was... Fighting France. Yeah, he was fighting France when King James decided that he would break the Treaty of Perpetual Peace. And you've got to believe that part of the reason James felt happy about breaking it was because he knew Henry and most of the British army were actually across a sea in France at the time that he decided to do this. (laughs) I know we were talking you know you're saying about um, Henry's chivalrous nature at least in his early reign James was pretty chivalrous as well because he broke the treaty uh, by sending a month's notice that he was going to invade England uh, to the Queen who was acting as regent at the time so he sent Uh, sent a letter saying just to let you know (laughs) in a month I'm going to invade (laughs) so 
you know, maybe maybe factor that into your decisions. Amazing. Like, I don't think chivalry had any... I don't think the code of chivalry had any reason. He didn't need to do that. That's hilarious. Oh, maybe he did, actually. He was breaking a promise. I think he, but... he felt that, yeah, because he was breaking a promise and because the regent was a woman yeah. at the time, that he had to um, give fair warning. I mean, wow. Mm. It's, it's dead stupid. Like, he's going to suffer for it. He's just going to. <laughs> no. But, but, like, you can only applaud that. Yeah. It's incredibly, incredibly stupid, but... Man, that is living by your principles. Because he had to have known it was like... Well, it definitely gave the English enough time to raise an army in the north. So if if he'd have just invaded, yeah, it would have been much easier, let's say, for his forces than giving the English a month to organise some kind of resistance. Gather supplies into castles, you know, start yeah. warning the civilian population to get out or get in the castle town. Like. Yeah, and his, his first sign that this might have been a bit of an error, a well, <laughs> well-intentioned error, but an error, was demonstrated on August 13th, 1513, when a 7,000-strong Scottish force was busy raiding Northumbria. Mm. They were ambushed by English forces on the way back home with their loot, and over 600 Scots were killed by arrows that appeared to come from nowhere. I they were too drunk to figure it out. Uh, no, the English just knew the terrain so well that they'd set up in a place where they knew the Scots had to go by, but had such good cover that essentially they managed to kill 600 of the army for no losses. Like, not a single Englishman died. I mean, that's a sizable percentage of a 7,000-strong force. Oh, yeah, yeah. You're getting up towards 10% of, yeah. of the raiding force. And without a single guy dying. The only cost of the English was that, you know, the Fletchers had to work double time that night. <laughs> That's it. A lot of bald ducks going around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, as, yeah, the Scots probably just thought that, you know, English ducks were just, just naturally bald. <laughs> um, that being said, though, the main invasion started well. You know, this was just a little skirmish. Yeah. Um, with James and 42 thousand soldiers that he brought with him i mean how reliable are these numbers that's a fucking lot of soldiers it is a lot of soldiers but they managed to capture some of the most well-known castles in the north of the country including mm. walk on tweed yeah. tweezel uh-huh. norrell all the, all the huge names keep coming etel yeah i've and definitely po- heard of all of these and possibly the, the crown jewel of them all ford castle uh, yeah, haven't heard of any of them. Which Sorry. was Ford Castle was so important that James yeah. decided to set up his court at Ford Castle, uh, and he was enjoying the company of Lady Heron and her daughter so much he decided that he didn't want to march any further, and instead he sent a herald to meet with the English forces, which were led by the Earl of Surrey, to agree on where they would fight a big set piece battle. So he was <laughs> like, "Do you know what? I've got forty two thousand blokes here. I'm being entertained by the Heron girls." Um, Creepy. You just, you just tell me where you want me to destroy you, and we'll march there. Just, <laughs> I just. Mean, I don't want to waste time. I can't, I can't get over this. Like Lady Heron and her daughter. Like mm. I, I know that two chicks at the same time is like quite a big deal for you know. Quite. A I lot never of said that there was anything carnal about this. I just said that they were entertaining him. Fair point. Now, what are the odds that you, they were like really into poetry and conversation? I, I don't know. They were really into loot music. I know that. <laughs> Play a mean loot. Yeah. That's that's what Lady Heron was famed for. She could strum a loot. 
<laughs> and get a fine tune. Um, but yeah. amazingly, some of the Scottish lords, they weren't particularly happy with the idea of asking the English forces for a pitched battle. They were quite happy with this, you know, roaming the countryside, taking castle after castle after castle, mm. loot plentiful for all the men, held everyone mm. together. Uh, and the Earl of Angus, he tried to argue to James that they'd done enough to help France now. They could keep the territory they'd won, fortify where they were, and call it Make a day. Scotland bigger and richer, yeah. yeah, yeah. And send an envoy to Henry to sort of negotiate and say, we're going to stop here as long as you recognise our, you know, legitimacy overruling these lands. Yes, basically sign what we've got away to us. Yeah, and we'll stop messing about here so you can focus on your war with France. Um, But, you know, James, he's chivalrous. (laughs) He's not going to do that. Uh, And James, he called him a coward, the Earl of Angus. And he sent him home back to Scotland, apparently in tears. (laughs) In tears. This may have been because he insisted that uh, Angus's sons stay with the with the army. Oh my god! So he he could see that this was probably a bad idea, and he was being sent away. But you know his lineage were being forced to stay, so he wasn't particularly happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, it sounds like James was a bit stupid, but not not totally stupid because they. Like, holding a man's heirs would be the fastest way to make sure that he wasn't going to go and start some shit when he got back home. So. Oh, no. Not yet, anyway. You, you've yeah. got to assume, you know, things could turn south if the heirs suddenly, I don't know, died. Died, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this sounds like Game of Thrones, I'm going to be mm. honest with you. Well, James wasn't particularly worried about that anyway, because... Yeah, uh, because he'd... Game of Thrones wouldn't exist for like, uh, nearly a thousand years. So. <laughs> yeah, although uh, you have to assume that James would have been disappointed by the ending. Everyone would. Anyone with a brain is disappointed by that ending. The people who made it were disappointed by that ending. <laughs> oh, God. Why did we do this? Speaking about, oh, God, why did we do this? Um, James, he decided on a place to have the battle. And he set his army up on Flodden Edge on September the 4th. A hill mm. that happened to have the remains of an Iron Age hill fort on top. Ah. The Scots reinforced the defences and they waited for the English. I mean, it seems fair enough. They're on top of a hill. It's like, it's not it's not the worst place to set up for a pitch battle. Yep, defensible position. Yeah. Um, these actions, though, they confused the Earl of Surrey, who thought that they'd agreed via Herald to fight on a plane at Millfield on the 9th of September, and he sent a letter to King James asking if James would be honouring this commitment or not. So they hadn't agreed to fight on Flodden Edge. They'd agreed to fight on a sort of, you know, a flat area where both armies wouldn't have an advantage. Yeah. And then the English watched the Scots busily sort of, you know, rebuilding this Iron Age force. Creating went, a massive advantage. <laughs> are, are we are we not doing the fair thing? Uh, James said that he wasn't going to, you know, in a, in a, in a 180 degree turn from a his... non-chivalrous moment for yeah. Jimmy IV. So he said, no, we're not moving. And he continued polishing the massive siege cannons he brought with him. <laughs> And when I say massive, the biggest was able to fire a 30-kilogram cannonball nearly two kilometres. These were monsters of siege cannon. The Earl of Sussex... He's fighting fighting an army. I suppose he was an invading force before that, Mm. wasn't he? The Earl of Surrey, he didn't know what to do. He was like, well, we'd agreed. Yeah. This is not cricket, sir. We were going to fight on the... 9th of September and now you're saying we're not what's going on why are you fortifying a position um, 
But luckily for him, John, the bastard heron, turned up. In his John camp. the Bastard Heron. Yeah. That is the most badass name I've ever heard in Tudor yeah. Well, he awesome. was he was livid that his half-sister had been entertaining the Scottish king for the past month. Right. Uh, and the bastard suggested that the Earl outflanked the Scottish forces and set up on Brankston Hill, which was about two miles north of Flodden Edge. The Earl, who decided that chivalry was out the window, yeah. he agreed to the plan and he split his army in two to cross the River Till at two places to try and speed up his outflanking manoeuvre. The vanguard reached Brankston village first and they found that James's scouts had seen the English breaking camp and had already relocated to Brankston Hill themselves, so they got the high ground. Oh, Christ. Um, though James, he suddenly rediscovered his chivalry and he decided not to fire on the smaller force with his cannon, stating that he wanted to wait until all the English had arrived before he destroyed them. So he had an opportunity to destroy half the British army oh while they were setting up and went, no, 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 no. I don't understand this guy. Like, he's, like My working theory now, the only one I can come up with, is that he was just getting drunk all the time and when he was drunk he was making stupid-ass decisions and then when, he, when they caught him when he was sober he was doing normal stuff. My, my theory on this was he wanted to destroy a large English army to legitimise what he was doing, to show right. his men and to show Henry over in France that he was a force to be reckoned with. So yeah, yeah. that's yeah. why he didn't have a problem with setting up on um, Flodden Edge because even though, yes, it wasn't what he'd agreed to do, if the English had met him there, he'd, he'd have still destroyed yeah. the English army and could go, look, you sent your best army <clears throat> that wasn't in France to fight <laughs> me and I beat it. Yeah, And that's why, again, he didn't want to fire on these guys because then people would turn around and go, well, yeah, you know, you beat a small force and then a small force. You couldn't have beaten an entire army. He wanted yeah. to demonstrate power. Yeah, I, I suppose believe. like swagger was like a big deal in the, in the medieval times, wasn't it? Well, either way, even when the rest of the English army arrived, it totaled only about twenty four thousand men. Wow, the almost Sc two to one. Yeah, the Scot. No, no, because the Scottish force had gotten smaller. Because you know, generally speaking, if you answered a summons from your liege lord, mm. it was about forty days that you had to fight. That was. But there were rules about this. Yeah, yeah. Shit. You, it wasn't an indefinite thing. You could call for people, but after I, it, I think the standard was somewhere around forty days, a month to two months, sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and after that, you had to stop paying yeah, them. What? No, after that, they would go. Right. It's like yes, I owe you um, support, but I also have to look to my own defence. I also have to look to you know I can't I can't get my entire stuff, yeah. workforce yeah. for you for yeah, a year. Fair point. So he'd lost about 10,000 men. He still had 32,000, which meant he still had a significant amount more. Mm. He also had the high ground. He also and had the cannon. The, the cannon, yeah. Um, there was still quite a difference between the two forces, you know, nearly yeah, 10,000 yeah. men. Mm. Um, but the combined 24,000 English and 32,000 Scots made the Battle of Flodden Field the largest battle between England and Scotland that has ever taken place to this date. I can't talk for the future, but definitely, historically <laughs> speaking, this is the largest battle. One day, all of Glasgow is just going to be like, you're right. <laughs> we are sick of this shit. <laughs> I think most of the north of England would be behind them. But anyway, yes. <laughs> this particular battle, it started... But a lot of cities would be like, right, we, we could be in the football league, right? Right, brilliant, we're on. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's a draw. 
for the Scottish people. I think they're quite happy with their own league system. It's oh no, I don't, think, I don't think it's a draw for Scotland. I think it's, I think it's just like you know that that's what would get the Northern Seas on side. <laughs> You're saying we can have the healthcare and the football <laughs> deal. <laughs> so anyway, the Battle of Flodden Field. Yeah, it started at four p.m. on Friday, September the ninth, fifteen thirteen, and oh, the Earl of Surrey got his battle on the ninth. How lovely yeah. for him! Well, because it was England. It was mm. rainy and windy. It's <laughs> like the fucking cricket. <laughs> the umpires have declared no battle today. We're hoping for tomorrow. <laughs> Having the high ground, as he did, James mm. ordered that his massive siege cannon fire immediately. Didn't, we, didn't both sides have the high ground because they were both on hills? No, no, no. We tried to take a hill, but the Scots had relocated oh, they got there first. to the top yeah, of the yeah, hill. Yeah. Sorry, I, I, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... James, he decided, he'll end this quick. He'll order his massive siege cannon to fire on the English. Mm. But they were siege cannon, and they were designed for use against rather large things like castles rather than the (laughs) troops. And they have very little impact, especially as they took up to 20 minutes to reload after each shot. And after you've seen the first one, you're like, well, it's going to land there, so I'll go over there. Um... (laughs) In comparison, the English artillery cannons were designed to fire against troops and they could fire much more rapidly. <laughs> the English actually thought that they must have destroyed the Scottish cannons because they stopped firing. But after the battle, they were all found to be intact. It was just too much effort to reload them. <laughs> and, and try and point them anywhere yeah. useful. <laughs> and after the first volley where they'd seen that it had, you know, I mean, I imagine that that 30 kilogram cannonball had caused one unfortunate English soldier to turn to... Melt. <laughs> <laughs> turn to an ether immediately. He had been dissolved <laughs> by the force of it. And it was terrifying for the few people stood around him, but for the main sort of bulk of the force, who were like, what? This would have been before explosives or anything. Would it just be a big rock like, yeah, it was, splatting someone? Yeah, one guy had a very, very terrible end. But aside from that, they were like, <laughs> "Oh, okay, that hasn't done as much damage as we thought it was going to do." If we all just move over there, yeah. <laughs> that won't happen again. Twenty minutes to reload, and then yes, you had to reposition because anyone who was stood where the last one had hit were like, "Yeah, Either dead or moved." Yeah. yeah. So the English have accidentally got cannon artillery superiority. Yeah. Fantastic. Based on the fact that James had gone for the idea of bigger is better. Um, and, you know, it ignored the fact that... Th- I mean, it's in the title, Siege Cannon. That thing would have taken, put a hole in most castle walls. Yeah. But, but they were fighting a moving castle. Yeah. They, this wasn't Dunsinane. <laughs> so, um, basically, they the, the decided to just abandon using them because it was more effort than it was worth. The left flank of the Scottish army then decided to advance and engage with the English right. They appeared to be making headway until some cavalry joined the fray from the English side and it quickly became a stalemate on that side of the battlefield. So the entire left flank of the Scottish army were just bogged down in a stalemate. They'd come down the hill. I'm very surprised that it turned into a stalemate with cavalry. Like, traditionally, if cavalry is stopped, they're getting murdered. <laughs> like- no. Well, dead horses form quite an effective barrier. But no, <laughs> the English were getting forced back and then the English were supported by a cavalry charge which kind of stopped the Scottish advance but mm. wasn't enough to turn the tide. So with the initial advance just of the Scots... into yeah, a melee. Yeah. It was just an absolute... Yeah. You know, it was hand-to-hand fighting of the Unico, most brutal sort of yeah, yeah, yeah. What James had seen in that was an initial success. 
and he reasoned that the English didn't have that much cavalry. So yeah, they managed to stop the left flank, but if he it just could never happen again on the right. Yeah, if he just ordered a full on assault, he was confident that they would push the English back and back and back and eventually cause them to would, break and run. There would definitely be no more cavalry charges. Yeah. So he he did he took the initiative and he decided, despite having the high ground, he would order the bulk of his army to advance directly down the side of Brankston Hill. Oh towards the English, which is a bold strategy. It's not what you, you'd expect a military leader to do if they'd forced an overnight march from all of their forces from a heavily fortified <laughs> position to get the high ground to immediately yeah, abandon like, it. That, 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 that's a kind of like wait until they're in prime position and half knackered move. You know mm. what I mean? Like that, that, that's an I'm going to end this battle now move, not mm. not a opening gambit. <laughs> okay. Well, it was it was a brave move. Let's say bold. Yeah, put it that. Yeah, yeah. bold, very bold. Mm. But unlike Flodden Edge, which they'd mm. camped out at for a little while, the Scots had not had enough time to properly survey the ground at Brankston Hill. And mm. as a result, they were unaware that they were marching into a groundwater seepage zone. <laughs> a bog. Yes, a bog. Oh, my God. <laughs> the marshy ground slowed the advance and sapped the strength of the Scottish troops. The lines became broken and the soldiers dropped the long pikes that they held in favour of their swords and axes. Oh, this made it easier to cross the terrain, but it meant that the English, who were on with bills, yeah. which are the ones with the little hook... Had a reach advantage. Yeah. Oh, yes, they did. A significant... <laughs> Several feet of reach advantage. <laughs> yes, which they, they used very unsportingly. <laughs> they used it when the two sides finally met. So the English, rather than having to march up a hill uh, against a, <laughs> a bunch of Scots holding pikes suddenly found that they were watching Scottish people flounder in a bog towards um, them <laughs> in a very broken line because people were making progress at different speeds. You know, all oh of the structure God. of the Scottish lines was just yeah, broken up. Which, which meant command was essentially useless and he mm. was every man for himself. Fantastic. Well, James saw that, you know, his, his all points advance may have been... A tactical error. <laughs> a, a slight tactical error, but he wasn't... You know, he still had 10,000 more troops in reserve than the English, so he was... Yes, you know, I, I tried something bold. Didn't work out. We'll, we'll mop this up and, you know, call it quits. Oh, we'll sort, we'll sort this. Don't you worry, I'll be fine. Yeah. Um, and he decided that now was the moment. Now was his moment. Right. To turn the tide of the battle decisively in his favour. And he rode down the hill himself... With his elite cavalry troops to engage the bodyguard of the Earl of Surrey directly. Right. So, you know, he thought, well, if I kill the leader. Cut the head off the snake. Yeah. Here. You know, my guys may be floundering at the moment, but once they see that I have killed the Earl of Surrey, it'll re reinvigorate them, and I'm sure we can still win the day. Hmm. And even after he charged, there were still more Scottish reinforcements waiting to join the fray. Uh, Highlanders, indeed. The Claymore people. Oh, yes. Brutal in hand-to-hand -hand combat and perfectly capable of turning the tide in battle. Mm. Unfortunately, they were also very lightly armoured. Well, yeah. <laughs> and because everybody else at this point, aside from the Highlanders, was engaged in hand-to-hand -hand combat, the English longbowmen really only had one target left on the field. Oh, yeah, I suppose they couldn't shoot any other Scottish units, could they? <laughs> They'd what, get their own men. Yeah, what James had left, instead of sending the, the elite hand-to-hand -hand fighters in at to the a front to a brutal <laughs> melee, he'd held them in reserve to the point where the only thing the archers had left to aim at 
were very lightly armoured men. Mm-hmm. Um, and they caused masses of casualties to the Highlanders. Uh, the Just... remaining Highlanders decided, you know, this wasn't really the kind of battle they signed up for, and they fled from the battlefield, which is well, good for them. If all your mates are dead. Yeah. yeah. Self-preservation. It's like, we're here for a scrap. Well, what I want you to do is I want you to sit on the subs bench. <laughs> Stand around and get shot yeah. at. <laughs> You're going to soak up quite a lot of the um, arrow fire and never actually no. get hands down. <laughs> You're never going to see the whites of an Englishman's eyes. That's Which awesome. is what you're here for, yeah. specifically. Um, even then, without the Highlanders, the hand-to-hand combat that did occur was brutal, with both armies being told by their leaders to give no quarter. It was quite unusual for the time, wasn't it? Because like, there wasn't, like, usually in most battles, there wasn't actually a lot of full-on murder going on. Yeah, it was more about seeing who had the tactical advantage, but... The, yeah. You know, King James. Sometimes it devolved into that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. King James had to win this battle. This was him trying to, you know. Yeah, he wouldn't have been able to secure any of the territory he'd nominally conquered. Yeah, and also, if he lost this battle, you know, what was he going to face with his nobles at home? Because he'd forced them into this war. Yes. That they didn't need to be involved in. They had a country that was stable, and they'd, you know, followed him into this with the promise, "Oh, we'll get a load of um, land, and it won't have any repercussions for us." Yeah. And from the English side, King Henry had probably sent word over saying, "You need to, you need to send Respect a message. We can't have." Oh, sorry, on the battle side. Yeah. Right, right, yeah, sorry. We can't have loads of you know successive revolts and and people trying to invade from the north. We have to show them what happens. Yeah. So yeah, no quarter. Oof. However, one of the key differences in approach from the two sides was the positioning of the nobles. The Scottish nobles were in the front lines, leading as per the medieval style, whereas the English nobles were directing the battle from the rear. Early modern style. Yeah. So as that they could have better control tactically and also so as that they couldn't be used in this kind of, you know, as a... So they wouldn't get murdered. Well, I was going to say being used as sort of like propaganda during the fight, you know, if you kill the commander and the cry goes up that the banner's gone down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, all of that that happened. So they were leading from the rear. But this meant that as more and more Scottish nobles were killed, the cohesion of the Scottish lines became more and more shaky. (laughs) And the English, because they were observing from the back, the commanders, they could send their reinforcements to key positions in the line to make sure that they were keeping, you know, an overall press on the Scots. And this eventually turned the battle inexorably into a rout of the Scottish lines. And because there was no quarter, a bloody massacre. An absolute bloody massacre. King James the Fourth himself was found dead on the battlefield, killed by a mixture of arrow and sword wounds, lying amongst the corpses of his personal bodyguard. Mm. He was, again to this day, yeah. the last British king to die in battle. Well, I mean, you know, I don't know. Am I supposed... To... <laughs> Machismo tells me I'm supposed to find that badass and stuff, but it's just sad, really, isn't it? Oh, it's very sad, because it's a, it's a fight he didn't need to, to engage in. in. Yeah. You know, he was doing this out of loyalty to uh, an alliance with France. That had never, ever worked out for Scotland. <laughs> no. I mean, I guess, yeah, there was a, a, an idea that there's personal gain to be had here because King Henry's away, we can take some land... You know, oh we, yeah, yeah. Like if we pretend that he was solely motivated by the the French alliance, 
that would be wrong, I think. But that seems to have been the spark of the idea, certainly. Mm. So, um, like I say, he died on the battlefield and his head, don't know what happened to the rest of him, but his head was eventually thrown into a charnel pit at Great St. Michael's Church in Wood Street in the city of London. Ugh. Though, yeah, that's that's just his head. The rest of him... Classy. Who knows? <laughs> Depending on what point in Henry VIII's life, he might be eaten. Mm. The church where his head was buried uh, has been replaced by a pub called the Red Herring although apparently this has become a victim of the pandemic and is now permanently closed oh, great. so you can't go and drink uh, the Red Herring where King James's head resides his skull ghost yeah. his ghost just, no I, I like the idea that it's just a skull ghost it's just a disembodied head floating around <laughs> yeah, can't, can't go to any of the interesting ghost parties because they require a body to carry the disembodied. <laughs> In the end, of the 32,000 Scots who turned up to the battle, at least 12,000 Scots died at Flodden. But they will be pleased to know, these 12,000 mm. martyrs, that their efforts to honour the old alliance were not in vain. France managed to gain territory in Italy. Hooray. Yes. Uh, the spoils were not shared with the Scottish. They were now ruled by the child king, James V, who was the nephew of King Henry VIII. And within two more generations, the crowns of England and Scotland would sit upon the head of the same person, in James VI. And first. After failing to combine the French and Scottish royal houses with James VI's mother, Mary, Queen, queen of Scots, uh, the old alliance was practically dissolved by the Treaty of Edinburgh in 1560, which <laughs> ended over 250 years of Scotland helping France for, let's be honest, very little benefit. Those bloody frogs. I, I don't think it was manipulation on the part of the French. It was just they offered terms that were very, very favourable to them. And the Scots accepted and kept honouring those terms. If... If you sign a deal that is very favourable to you and not very favourable to the other person, you are considered a good negotiator. This is true. Yeah. But I... equally, like, you're talking about a world where if you just tell a, tell somebody you've got an agreement with to piss off, generally they've got no recourse mm. to sort that out. You know what I mean? <laughs> There's no international court no. that's going to, like, levy a fine or anything. You just, you know... But that, you think after the first few times when it didn't really help them at all and nobody cared and they didn't gain any reputation or anything. <laughs> just like, fuck this. Bugger this for a game of soldiers. And it was, it was the constant fear of the English. It was any ally, no matter mm. how unreliable <laughs> or how much of a paper shield they turned out to be, was better than no ally. And that that's pretty much the, the legacy of Edward I. It's... Yeah. This is this is how much of an influence he had on the the national identities of England and Scotland in terms of their relationship was that he 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 basically to put it in unflattering and non-modern terms he beat the crap out of them so much they developed like battered spouse syndrome. Yeah. Is is well that's one reading of it definitely that it was well we we will need help against yeah. these people despite the fact that every time they fought the English from that point on they didn't actually receive help. It was just it was almost psychologically, yeah, psychologically it helped them whereas the French were getting all the actual help of you know soldiers being sent over and yeah. you know actual support in wars but that is the story of the old alliance and Flodden Field you know what I can see why the Scots in general are, are a bit fishy about unions eh <laughs> <laughs> doesn't work out very often for them mm. and yeah you know I mean 
I guess you could say that, you know, James the Sixth was a Scottish king first. Mm, true. Um, but let's be honest also, like, as soon as he became king of England, he buggered off to London, didn't he? Didn't go back. No, not so much. No, he. I think he felt it was an upgrade. It was. Like, let's, let's not beat around the bush. Scotland was a poor country compared to England. Mm. And England was a poor country compared to the rest of Europe at this point. So, like, you know, let's not pretend it wasn't. But An upgrade's an upgrade. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's like, you know, if you're going from bronze to silver, you can't bitch that it's not gold. Wow. <laughs> what a depressing way of thinking of the British Isles. Well, oh, come on. we're not quite gold, but, you know, we're arguing over different levels of shit. That's what we're doing. Yeah. You can be the best shit. <laughs> mm. But to be fair, I mean, I guess the one thing you can say is that um, the Scottish did keep their own crown to the point where it was um, sort of, you know, it naturally became part of the British crown mm. through marriage and descendants and da da da. Whereas the Welsh um, were, it was a hostile takeover. Mm. You know, there's the way that the Scots fought the English and the way that they. Uh, politicked meant that the only way that the English ultimately could sort of claim Scotland as part of Great Britain as part of their sort of kingdom was to do it via marriage and via you know that treaty. that sort of yeah treaty kind of way rather than the hostile takeover which I guess yeah, it had I mean, Edward the first rolling in his grave. Ultimately, it was very successful. Yeah, Edward I would have fucking hated it. <laughs> no treaty, no surrender. Murder them all until they agree to serve you. <laughs> but he was a hard man from a hard time. It was ultimately, in the balance, the Act of Union served Scotland fairly well, if you look at it from a sort of imperial viewpoint. Because at the time it went through, in the end, mm. like by, by the time we actually made the United Kingdom and we stopped pissing around with the idea of the King of Scotland and the King of England being the same person, it was, like, the union went through. Parliament could administer the whole country, but there was a completely separate law system, a completely separate church system, a completely separate education system. Everything was, like, everything that could be separate except the army and MPs was separate. So they retained, like, a huge deal of cultural independence, which, as we've seen, has worked out quite well for them because it's meant that Scotland's never abandoned its identity as a country of Scotland. Mm. It's never become just, like a region of Britain, which is what England is, let's be honest. Okay, that's because England is the default and dominates, but that's also an unfortunate like sort of consequence of history rather than an actual choice. Right, and I suppose that once the Act of Union went through and the Scots didn't have to worry about fighting the English quite so much, suddenly the the engineering boom and yeah, the well, invention exactly. boom of the Scots just took off and they basically sort of create, yeah, created the Industrial Revolution and the British Empire. Yeah. It was a huge, like, something like over over a quarter of all, like, significant... Like, I can't remember. It's, it's probably some bollocks study, but, like, I've, I remember reading somewhere that, according to one such study, over a quarter of imperial, like, um, appointments mm. where people actually did something. Like, it's not just, like, there's a name on a list saying that this man did this and no one knows because he didn't... No one cares. He just turned up, took the money and went home one day. Like, over a quarter of, like, um, purposeful imperial appointments were Scotsmen, which for the size of the population and the size of the empire is freaking insane. Mm -hmm. And you add on top of that, as you say, the engineering revolution, which was because of their superior education system. Mm. 
like, I'm not going to say it worked out well for them because, like, you know, it worked out well for everyone because I'm not the person who believes the Empire was a good thing in general. Like, I, I don't know if I've said it before, but I believe it is, like, as far as I can tell, my ancestors are East Anglian tenant farmers, Welsh tenant farmers, Scottish sharecroppers, and a brief stint in London as East End slum dwellers. So what did the Empire ever do for me and mine? Absolutely nothing, and I imagine that's true for a lot of Scotsmen. But if you take the sort of traditional view of history of like, you know, when the country's rich and doing well, yeah, it's that's 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 a historical win. Scotland benefited quite well from the Act of Union. Yeah, and yeah, as you know, to this day, the Scottish people are very thankful, and will always. It's not. Talk it's not about a matter of a being fondness thankful. for the English. And <laughs> they're they're always happy that, not... about our sporting events. I'm not saying that the English did anything for them. I'm saying that the Scots took the opportunity in front of them and did a load of, like, you know... Cool shit. Yeah, they did. I don't know, cool, impressive. Is impressive... Do you know what I mean? Momentous. Big. Notable. Notable things suddenly start happening. Yeah, I don't want to make a moral judgment on it because it's the Empire and, you know, the Empire generally was bad. But, like, they did a lot of stuff and no one else did it and and it all happened and it was impressive in its day. Oh, God, wasn't it impressive? Yeah. Well, there you go. Cheese man, <laughs> they'll call you. <laughs> you solve... won't deflect bullets, but you might deflect some of the insults that are coming your <laughs> Only solving dairy-related crimes. <laughs> solving a shit a banana man. <laughs> Do you remember Banana Man? Oh, God, I had a Banana Man t-shirt. When Eric eats a banana... Acacia Road. 26 Acacia Road. Mm. And he had a crow as a sidekick for reasons I couldn't fathom. <laughs> it's because everyone who was writing the dandy was on crack. <laughs> Fair enough. It's my firm opinion. How do you, how else do you create a hero? Like, who? Let's create the ideal hero for a Scotland-based British comic. What's he going to be? Well, we'll make him a cowboy, but he lives in the UK and he's called Desperate Dan and he eats pies made of literal cows. Why was he desperate? Was he desperate for food? I don't know. He was just desperate. Desperate Desperate Dan. (laughs) It's quite a shit name, really. I've never thought of that because it was just part of your childhood. Desperate Dan. What's he desperate for? He can't hold any... He's like, he's just super anxious. He can't hold any relationships because he's just desperate for approval. I was wondering... Yeah, if he he's could... all right. He's just really annoying. He's too needy. I had to leave. And then fucking cow buys a shit. Yeah. Imagine what he did... It's a whole cow. What he did to your toilet. Desperate, <laughs> desperate Dan, yeah, that might be it. I shouldn't laugh because that's like offensive to my people, but <laughs> he destroyed my car, see. <laughs> well, he was desperate, mate. <laughs> <laughs>